0: Coming up on today's show, when is a no-no not a no-no? Don't look now, but the Pirates are back to 500. The Wizards keep on winning. And we'll recap the weekend in uh, high school hoops. All that and more coming up uh, in the next two hours of the Morning Rush. Good morning to you. How the heck are you? So glad to have you on board. So glad you could take some time to tune in and hang out as we kick off yet another essential work week. Hope you had yourself a wonderful weekend. Several ways to get involved on the show, as always. Check out our Twitter pages at ESPN Morning Rush. My Twitter page, at Rush Tony C. I honestly can't remember the last time I tweeted anything. I, I just can't remember. I have been uh, socially distant on the socials. Just not into it. Yeah, I know. You can use the socials to promote the show and promote myself and all that kind of stuff. Just not feeling the socials lately. Just not. Anyway. You still check out the pages anyway. Because we do put stuff up there. I just need to get back into the groove. Our Facebook page at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Taking your calls on the rush line. 301 759 2628, your chance to dial and dance. Shaman. 301 759 2628. And uh, our podcast page, of course, on the free Podbean app. We upload every show every day, minus commercials. Go back and check out anything you missed right there on our podcast page. Just download that Podbean app on your phone or tablet, and there you go. All right, uh, let's kick off today's show as we kick off every show with a rock around the region. I want to rock! And we start with Major League Baseball where Austin Hayes hit a pair of home runs to lead the O's over the A's 8-1. And in the process, snap Oakland's 13-game win streak. John Means, another great start for the O's. One run on two hits with six strikeouts over six in the third innings. His ERA is now down to 1.50, best among American League starters. For Oakland, that streak snapped. It was their third longest win streak since moving to Oaktown in 1968. Elsewhere, the Pirates, yes, the Pirates, were looking to get back to the 500 mark with a win
1: in Minnesota. Polanco sends one soaring out to right and deep and there it goes! A home run over the tall wall. Right is center. Polanco with his third home run of the year. A three-hit day and the Pirates lead 6-1. to
0: Joe blocked the call on the Pirates radio network. Three hits for Gregory Polanco including that home run as the Pirates beat the Twins 6-2 to take two of three in the weekend series. The Bucs now 11-11 after a 1-6 start. And in New York, the Mets shut out the Nationals 4-0 to take two of three in that weekend series. A Nats starter, Patrick Corbin, gave up four runs on seven hits and three walks in just four innings. He lost his 10th straight decision, dating back to last August. On to the NBA now, where the Wizards just keep on winning. Westbrook left wing outside the arc. Now steps inside the arc.
1: Banks and scores! Banks and scores over Isaac Okoro, 116-108. And now the Wizards again have their biggest lead, eight points.
0: The call on Federal News Radio, 119-110 the final. As the Wiz beat the Cavs in D.C., Bradley Beal had uh, 33 points. Russell Westbrook 14 points, 10 assists for Washington, which is on its longest win streak since winning nine in a row back in 2001, uh, when some guy named Michael Jordan was still on the roster. And on the ice Sunday, Jake Gensel scored the only goal of the game at 4:03 of the third period to give the Penguins a one-nothing win over the Bruins in Pittsburgh. Tristan Jari stopped all 30 shots he faced for the Pens, who are alone in first place in the East Division. One point ahead of the Capitals and four in front of the Islanders. And that is your Rock Around the Region brought to you by the Cap Rally Group. Now look, we talked about it on Friday. We knew that that East Division, right, in the the NHL, was just jam packed up top. That's a huge two points for the Penguins because not only did it leapfrog them over Washington into first place, it kind of kept Boston at bay just a little bit because going into the game, the Pens had a five-game Bru- five game sorry, lead on the Bruins. I'm not five games, sorry, five point lead on the Bruins. Pens has 65 points. The Bees had 60. So if Boston wins that game, then there's only a three-point separation, 65-62. to So a huge two points for the Pens as they open up a seven-game lead. I keep on saying game. A point lead over Boston. So as it stands right now, the Pens, who are 8-1-1 in their last 10 games, oh, by the way, Uh, they're in first at 67 points. The Caps... 66, the Isles 63, and then Boston at 60. And it looks like, well, I don't want to say it's over quite yet because the Rangers are now four points behind Boston. The Rangers have a chance even though Boston does have two games in hand on New York. So really, I think with the Islanders, they have a seven-point lead over the Rangers. I think they're safe. The Pens, Caps, and Isles are safe. There are, I think they are a lot to get in. The Bruins, if they slide, the Rangers could catch them. The, the Flyers are done. They have 51 points. They're finished. They're nine points back of Boston. So right now in that East Division, it's basically just a, 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 one, a two-team race for that fourth spot. Unless the Isles... Just really just fall off the map. Because the Pens at 67 points, they're 11 ahead of the Rangers. There's no way the Rangers are catching them. None. And there's only, what, seven games left? Is that right? The Pens have seven, I do believe. The Caps and Isles have eight left. And the Bruins have uh, nine left. The Pens, what are they playing again? They're playing the Bruins again, right? Let me uh, me consult the Bones here real quick. Because There's going to be a lot of moving and shaking here uh, in the next couple days because they have the Bruins uh, tomorrow and then the Capitals for two games after that. The Pens go to Washington after that. So it would behoove the Pens to pick up two more points on Boston tomorrow. Because then they're at Washington Thursday and Saturday. They could pretty much, depending on what the Islanders do, they could pretty much wrap up the division. I'm not saying they will, because I don't think they will. But if they beat Boston tomorrow, and then take both games in Washington, the Pens could pretty much wrap it up. We'll see. We'll see. Anyway, exciting stuff down the stretch. Even that game yesterday, I was going back and forth. Because the Pens and the Pirates, little uh, bucks and pucks, they were on at the same time yesterday. So I'm, I'm switching back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Because the Pirates, as we'll talk about here shortly, are suddenly a very interesting team to watch. But that Penguins-Bruins game and people who don't watch hockey will look at that one nothing score and go, boy, that must have been a really boring game. But it wasn't. It wasn't. Jari made 30 saves. Uh, Who was in net for Boston? I can't remember. He made 28 saves. There there wasn't a penalty call to the third period. It was just good back-and-forth action. Some great saves by both goaltenders. A 1-0 game in hockey is completely different than a 1-0 game in baseball. A one nothing game in hockey can be really, really exciting. In baseball, sometimes, not so much. Not so much. That's a long nine innings of a one nothing game, if you're into the offense. But that game yesterday between the Pens and the Bees, very exciting, very exciting. And I think partly because of what's on the line. You know what I mean? If, if that was a one nothing game back in October... Still would have been an exciting game. But I think because the stakes were so high right now, I just added to the moment, the atmosphere. You know what I mean? But then on the other side, as I said, I was flipping back and forth. We have the Pirates. Who, look. if you would have told me that the Pirates, after starting out 1-6, would be at the 500 mark near the end of April, I would have had you drug tested. I wouldn't have believed it. The way they came out of the gate, winning the season opener and then losing the next six, I would have thought no way. But yet here we are. What is it, April 26th? And the Pirates are 11-11 after taking two of three from the Twins over the weekend. They wrapped up their nine-game road trip at six and three. First time that they won three series all in the same road trip since 2015. They have either won or split their last five series since that six-game losing streak. They are 10-5 and since that six-game slide. I understand. They haven't exactly faced, you know, a murderer's row lately. Having played the Twins and Tigers, the two worst teams in the AL Central. I get that. I think Minnesota has lost 11 of 13 now. They're really bad. But Pittsburgh did take a series from the first place Brewers. And they did split a four-gamer with the now first place Padres. It's not bad. The Pirates are in third place in the NL Central. Two and a half games behind Milwaukee for first, and a half game behind St. Louis for second. And they have St. Louis coming up here uh, later in the week. Now, I'm not going to sit here and be foolish enough to say the Pirates are a playoff team. They're not. They're they're not a World Series team. They're not a division contender. They're not even a wild card contender. Eventually, they're going to fall off. But for a team that was projected to be the worst in baseball, a team that was projected to have a win total of 59 and a half, to be 11-11 after 22 games, after the start they had, I'm sorry, but that's pretty impressive. That Even if you're not a Pirates fan, that's impressive. But do you know how easy it would have been for a team that's not expected to win, that's not expected, a team expected to be the worst in baseball? Do you know how easy it would be to just go in the tank after a 1-6 and six start? Right? It, it would have been real easy for the Pirates to say, well, I guess everybody was right. We stink. And then just cash it in. Just collect a paycheck for the next five months. But at least so far, that's not what happened. They didn't do that. They didn't go in the tank. And I, I think they deserve a little credit for that. How they're doing it, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> It's not like, you know, they have a stellar lineup. I mean, look, they got Adam Frazier's hitting 310 out of the leadoff spot. He was 3-for-5 yesterday. He's tied for seventh in all of baseball with 26 hits. Brian Reynolds is hitting 304. Those are the only two players in the lineup hitting over 300. That's it. Eric Gonzalez... He's been filling in for uh, Key Brian Hayes at third. He's hitting 262. He's had some, some big hits in key situations. Phillip Evans got off to a hot start. He's batting now down around 250. But he's come up with some key hits. Colin Moran, some key hits. So it, it's it's not exactly uh, uh, the the whole body of work for this lineup. It's just, it seems like everybody is chipping in at different times, right? You look at some of the averages 260, 250, 220, 180. But it seems like every everybody, you know, Jacob Stallings and Kevin Newman, Polanco, who, who's been awful most of the year, had three hits yesterday, including a home run. Everybody seems to be chipping in at the right time. But the biggest surprise so far, has been the pitching, especially the bullpen. And I said when we we when we previewed the teams before the season started, I told you I didn't believe that the Pirates were the worst team in baseball. I didn't believe that win total of 59 and a half. That they would be better than that. Maybe not much better than that. But they would be better than that because of their lineup, which I thought would be okay but that was with Key Brian Hayes, who they haven't had for a while. I knew their bullpen was strong at the back end. I, I thought their starting pitching was going to be their major issue, and it still is. But so far, that bullpen has been absolutely lights out. In the last twelve games, the Bucks bullpen is four and zero. With a 1.02 ERA. Yesterday, uh, Will Crow was a spot starter. He only went four innings. So the bullpen had to lock down the next five. And they did. They allowed just one run and three hits with eight strikeouts. And, And Stratton, he allowed the one run, a home run to Nelson Cruz, and the three hits. Everybody else, scoreless, no hits. And I get it. You know, if you're not a Pirates fan or a league, or a very very diehard baseball fan, I mean, you'd look at the Pirates roster and, and you would be like the guy. Remember the uh, the Indians fans in, in the movie Major League? Like you would look at the roster and go, you know, who in the heck are these? Who in the heck are these guys? That's the Pirates. But not bad. I mean, look. Eventually, they're going to come crashing down to earth. Eventually, you know, they're not going to be able to keep this up. But for now, I think I'll just enjoy the fact that the Pirates, yes, the Pirates are relevant almost a month into the season. And I, look, I understand. It's really sad <laughs> to have those expectations. But, You take it when you can get it, right? When you're a fan of a bad team, you take it where you can get it. And if being relevant a month into the season makes you happy, then you take it. And you just wait for (laughs) – you just wait for everything to just go off the rails, which it will eventually. So we enjoy it uh, while it lasts. Let's go Bucks baby 11 and 11 third place Take that Cubs and Reds How's the view from behind us Again I got to do it while I can cuz it won't last All right stick around We're talking Ravens next 102.1 FM AM 12:30 Cumberland's ESPN Radio
2: This is the morning rush
0: Rush line is open, 301-759-2628. I wish, I wish my life was so perfect that I could just complain about things that some people complain about. You know what I mean? I wish my life was so much in order. The things that people gripe about or that they find bothersome, it's its amazing to me sometimes. Like, you, sometimes you just look at people and go, Really? that's it like your life is so straight that's what you have to worry about that is that's it that's what you're going to spend your time <laughs> you know what i mean i wish my life was that in order my goodness <laughs> i got a whole lot of problems in my life but i see some of the things people complain about it's like wow you must be you must be good if that's, you know, if that's the top of your priority list to have a beef about. It's amazing. Anyway. Uh, this, look, this happened on Friday, but I wanted to give it some love today because, you know, we weren't able to talk about it until now because it went down after the show was over Friday. It's a, it's a pretty big deal in the NFL when this news came down at the Ravens and the Chiefs uh, pulled off a trade that sent Pro Bowl left tackle Orlando Brown Jr. to Kansas City in exchange for three picks in uh, this week's draft, including uh, KC's first rounder at number 31 overall, a third rounder, and a fourth rounder, as well as a fifth round pick in 2022. Now, along with Brown... The Chiefs will also get the Ravens' second-round pick this week, which is number 58 overall, and a sixth-rounder next year. Now, the fact that Baltimore unloaded Brown really wasn't that surprising. He was unhappy ever since he had to fill in for Ronnie Stanley last season at right tackle for 11 games. Stanley got hurt, so they moved Brown to right tackle. And then the Ravens kind of hinted around at keeping him there, which is where he doesn't want to be. Brown sent out a tweet on January 29th that simply said, I'm a left tackle, left being in all caps, I'm a left tackle. He said his late father wanted him to play left tackle in the NFL, and he wanted to fulfill that dream of being a left tackle in the NFL. So the Ravens said, well, you might leave you over at right tackle, and then Orlando Brown was like, you can get me out of here then. I don't want to be here. So the question really wasn't why they traded Brown. The question was, why did they trade Brown to the Chiefs of all teams? Front office insider Mike Tannenbaum was on the Max Kellerman show. I, I think the reason they made that trade is they weren't going to be able to keep him you know, this is going to be you know the first of many non-Lamar Jackson rookie contract veterans they can't keep. Let's get something for him now before he leaves in free agency. The,
3: to the Chiefs? Down the road, sir. So. To the Chiefs? You want to give Mahomes blindside protection? Are they crazy?
0: Hey, when you're selling like that, you know there's 31 other teams. You don't like to do it. I'm sure
3: they would have liked to go to the NFC, Max, but yeah. um, they got good value and they had to pull the trigger.
0: Now, you heard Max Kellerman, right? And I think that was the reaction from a lot of people. because I know the Ravens were pressed into trading Brown because he was going to walk after the season anyway. He was going to be a free agent. But the rest of the AFC, just like Max Kellerman there, had to be looking at Baltimore and going, Really? Did you really just do that? One of Kansas City's biggest problems last year was at the tackle spots. Now, you remember that? They went into the Super Bowl without either of their starting tackles because of injury. Including left tackle Eric Fisher, who they released in the offseason. So the one thing KC needed, perhaps more than anything else, was a starting left tackle. And then the Ravens go, there you go. Here... You you can have this 25-year-old, two-time pro bowler to plug into your left tackle spot. Last season, when he was playing left tackle, Brown allowed zero sacks and zero quarterback hits in 700 snaps at left tackle. And now he plays for Kansas City. And Freddie Coleman says, if you're going to give up a guy like that and send him to the team that has won the last two AFC titles, you better make those extra draft picks count.
2: I'm not going to criticize the Ravens for making a trade because Orlando Brown didn't want to play
0: for them, especially wanting to play right tackle. He wants to play left tackle. But if you're going to help a quarterback of another team, and you mentioned this before the show got started, in the same conference at AFC, then you better go out there and help your own quarterback and Lamar Jackson by bringing a wide receiver. I know you got Sammy Watkins in free agency. That's not enough. If you believe Lamar Jackson's gonna be the do you and give him that kind of contract, you better go help him with a receiver or tight end with that 31st pick in the draft. Not only do you need to go out and get a receiver to help Lamar Jackson, you need, oh, by the way, a left tackle. <laughs> you wanna help Lamar Jackson? How about some blindside help? Because you just traded that away. Now, it was floated last week that the Ravens may fill that left tackle spot with Steelers free agent Alejandro Villanueva. And I guess he visited Baltimore uh, last Thursday. And look, they have the extra picks now. They could address that in the draft or other free agents. If the Ravens are smart, and this is coming from a Steelers guy, they want to stay away from Villanueva because he just wasn't very good last season. Now, I know he started there in Pittsburgh for six years, and for the most part, he was he was pretty good. He was pretty good. Last season, he was not. Now, maybe a change of scenery uh, will help but i think that villanueva's best days as a starting left tackle are behind him and i don't think that's the guy that you want out there for 6 or 17 games now protecting lamar jackson's uh, backside they're better off looking somewhere else maybe through the draft and since they got sammy what are they picking uh shoot i don't know when their first their first their first first round pick is because they have Casey's, uh thirty first overall, and they consult the bones once again here and see. I uh, see Raven. I know it's going to be late. It's going to be in a later uh, first round. So they're picking twenty seventh and thirty first on Thursday. So maybe with one of those two picks, they they snatch up the best receiver available. And maybe the other pick, they snatch up the best offensive tackle available. And then they they address both of those needs right there in the first round. Maybe they trade one of those picks. Maybe they trade out of the first round and grabs a couple more second rounders or a second and a third or a second and a, Who knows? But like Freddie Coleman said, you just sent a two-time Pro Bowl left tackle to a team that first of all you can't beat and to a team that nobody in the AFC can beat over the last two seasons. You just sent one of the better young left tackles in the game to protect arguably the best quarterback in the game. So you better make these draft picks count that you got from Kansas City. So we'll see what happens. I don't know what's going to be available at 27 and 31. Maybe they package those two first-rounders to move up to grab somebody. That's a possibility. But I think you look at the Ravens moving into Thursday, their two greatest needs, you know they're set in the backfield. You know they're set at running back and at quarterback. They're set at tight end when healthy. Defense, was on point last year. They lost a couple guys this year. I know that. But their two greatest needs going into Thursday, offensive line and wide receiver. So, address those in the draft. I don't know who's out there via free agency. I have no idea. I know the Chiefs made a very strong push uh, for Trent Williams, trying to get him away from San Fran before he re-signed with the Niners. But, The Constellation Prize, eh, not too bad. Orlando Brown Jr., (laughs) not too bad at all. And, of course, we'll have more more jawboning about the draft as it comes closer. First round on Thursday. I will put together my – I'm not going to go – I said it last week, and I meant it. When we talk about mock drafts and all this stuff, nobody knows what's happening. Nobody has a clue. It's all guesswork, all of it, all of it. Even the guys who get paid to do that kind of stuff, like Mel Hyper Jr. and those, and uh, Todd McShay. They're all guessing. Even if you have insiders and you have people within organizations, they don't know, because most of the time those insiders are lying anyway. Like, do you really think, <laughs> you really think somebody you know in, in the Ravens organization or the Steelers? Or you know Washington, you really think they're going to divulge important information to the media? Like, oh yeah, this is exactly what we're going to do, and yeah, this is exactly who we're going to. Do. No, we're all guessing. We're all we're all it's just, it's blind. It's, it's the blind leading the blind when it comes to the draft. So I will have. My mock draft on either Wednesday, it'll be Thursday, I suppose, before the first round starts. I'm I'm not going to spend a ton of time researching. I did last year. Last year, I held my first round mock draft. And I I spent countless hours just trying to put it all together. What team might do this? What team might do that? Who will be available? Who's going to trade? And I got two. Two! (laughs) Two! Picks right in the first round out of 32, two. And I am not going to waste that time again. I could give it maybe an hour's worth of attention as far as research and everything goes and still get two right in the first round. So it'll be a mock draft, but it'll be a uh, very loose, (laughs) loose mock draft. You know, it'd be funny is if I only spent an hour researching and got like way more than two. Like I'm telling you, I spent, I bet you I spent a total. Well, I can't even put a time on it, but it was it was multiple evenings leading up to the first round. Multiple evenings uh trying to put together my mock draft last year for the first round. And I got two picks right. I will do the minimal, the the least amount of work this year and I'll probably get like 10 or 11 right because we're all guessing we are throwing darts blindfolded when it comes to figuring out what teams are going to take what players the first couple picks might not be a problem after that as soon as a team takes somebody you didn't expect or there's a trade you could take your mock draft and flush it that's usually how it works Alright, uh, going back to a break and then we're back to wrap up our number one. Stick around. Come on, on Radio.
2: This is the Morning Rush.
0: Kind of caught off guard there when I heard uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin in a uh, Tide commercial. Love Stone Cold. Saw over the weekend... I watched a little bit of it, A&E, uh, biography. Apparently, they've been doing a lot of pro wrestling stuff. And they had back-to-back uh, biographies on Stone Cold Steve Austin and then Rowdy Roddy Piper. And I made sure I dvr both of them. And I caught maybe 40 minutes or so of the Stone Cold one before I got too tired, had to go to sleep. Uh, I thought it was really, really good. I love those, those biographies and the old, old school wrestlers and stuff like that. I was a huge uh, pro wrestling fan back in the day. Not so much. When I was a kid, I watched it all the time. Coming up, guys like uh, Jimmy Superfly Snooker, right? Sergeant Slaughter, Hulk Hogan. The Iron Sheik. <laughs> That's who I grew up on then WrestleMania came around and just blew up all over the place. Uh, Randy Macho Man, oh yeah. Macho Man Savage, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, Jake the Snake, you know what's up. Then there was a transition there. There was a transition when well back then it was WWF, right? And they changed into the they call the Attitude Era. You remember that? And Stone Cold, which I didn't realize until I watched this biography, part of it on set, he was really like the guy. The guy that kicked off the WWF or WE Attitude Era, which was amazing if you followed it. Absolutely incredible. Not that way anymore because, you know, society. But the Attitude Era was fantastic in pro wrestling. And Stone Cold had a lot to do with that. And I forgot that he started his career as stunning Steve Williams. He had a long, flowing blonde hair, bright red, I think it was red, bright red robe, like nothing like Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was complete opposite. But he had to change his character a couple times. And boy, whenever Stone Cold, whenever he hit the scene, whoo. It took off and really ushered in that attitude era. And then it just exploded. Then you had like The Rock and The Undertaker and Triple H and all and all those guys. That was the second time I really got into pro wrestling. Again, first time back in the 80s those guys I talked about. Second time was the attitude era. And then I haven't paid attention since. I haven't paid attention since. Because I just don't think it's as good as it used to be. Because they're not allowed to be. Because everybody's gonna get upset about something. Right? They really, really toned it back from the attitude. The last great era of pro wrestling was the attitude era. Anyway. Point being, coming full circle, if you are a pro wrestling fan, or at least a former pro wrestling fan. Check out A E's biographies on on, on uh, those two guys. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, so we had a race yesterday at Talladega, real quick. Uh, Brad Keselowski wins in overtime. Uh, he led one lap, and that was the final lap, and uh, he gets he gets the victory. Look, if you're going to lead a lap, it, it's the last one's always the best one. There were 35 lead changes in yesterday's race, among 27 drivers. Which is incredible. There was also... being Talladega, some drama.
1: Elliott leads the lane down low. Oh, Logano
3: gets turned. Logano is upside down. He'll slam back into the racetrack on the roof of the car. The car is spinning wildly out of control. Now it flips back out onto all four wheels. Others are collected, and others evade Joey Logano, who goes for a tumble at the end of the Alabama Gang Super Stretch.
0: That's how it sounded on the uh, Motorsports Radio Network. Logano going airborne. Then coming back down on his top, and he said it's time for NASCAR to change what he called the "quote unquote" dangerous racing conditions at Daytona and Talladega. He says on one hand that he was mad about being in the crash, but on the other he was happy to be alive. And he said, "Quote on another hand, I am wondering when we are going to stop because this is dangerous." doing what we are doing. I got a roll bar in my head that is not okay. He says, I am one hit away from the same situation Ryan Newman just went through. I just don't feel that is acceptable, end quote. And you remember the Ryan Newman situation on the final lap of the, what was it, Daytona, right, a year ago, 2020? So Logano Fortunately, escapes serious injury. And when you look at the cra- those kind of crashes, when you look at the video, you wonder, I mean, it's amazing that guys are able just to, to walk away from those things. His car literally went airborne and then landed on its top. And he's like, he's alive. It's It's, it's amazing. Anyway, Keselowski gets his uh sixth win at Talladega. Four drivers, I'm, I'm just reading the story here. Uh four drivers took four of the top five spots. Also took spots nine through thirteen. So there you go. Little NASCAR talk. Kind of reminds me, remember when the pandemic shut everything down? I had never talked more NASCAR than I did. Like a year ago, like now when everything absolutely shut down, I I talked more NASCAR and golf than I ever did in my entire life because there was nothing else going on. We're reaching a point in the year where we're almost, aside from baseball, not going to be much left. High school uh, hoops is wrapping up. High school in general will be wrapping up. And there's no football. Basketball is going to be wrapping up. NHL is going to be wrapping up. (laughs) <laughs> and we're back to baseball and NASCAR I'm watching that uh, Lugano wreck again Man, that's incredible it's fascinating and terrifying to watch at the same time it really is the stuff these guys put themselves through and what they risk look at that it's, it's just whoop right in the air he gets spun hits hit again and he is completely off he's like uh, Ricky Bobby oh I'm flying I'm in the air Thankfully he's okay. All right. Hour number 1 in the books, hour number 2 around the corner doing push-ups. Stick around. 102.1 FM AM 12:30 Cumberland's ESPN Radio.
2: This is the Morning Rush.
0: Show is brought to you by Thomas Cumberland where the experience is all about you, a reminder several ways to get involved on the show. Hit me up on Twitter at ESPN Morning Rush. At Rush Tony C., our Facebook page, at Cumberland's ESPN Radio. Like the pages. Follow the pages. They're open to the public. Anytime you feel froggy, take the leap. Drop me a line. Got a question? Something you want me to talk about? A comment? An opinion? Whatever. All those pages there just for you. Also, taking your calls on the Rush line, 301 759 2628, your chance to dial and dance. Shamo. 301 759 2628. And of course, our podcast page. On the free Podbean app, we upload every show every day, minus commercials. In case you missed something, for instance, if you missed the first hour of today's show, we talked about the surprising pirates getting back to the 500 mark. We talked about the Penguins taking over first place in the East Division. We talked about the Ravens sending left tackle or left tackle. They didn't send any tacos. Left tackle. (laughs) Orlando could have sent tacos as part of the trade package. It would be odd, but possible. Orlando Brown Jr. uh, to Kansas City for some draft picks. Talked a little NASCAR. All kinds of stuff in the first hour. So if you missed it, check it out later today. Uh, again, on our podcast page, on the free Podbean app. All right, uh, let's rock around the region. I want
1: to rock right now.
0: And we start with Major League Baseball, where Austin Hayes hit a pair of home runs to lead the Orioles over the A's 8-1 to and snap Oakland's 13-game win streak. John Means, another great start for the O's. He allowed one run on two hits. With six strikeouts over six and a third innings. His ERA is now down to 1.50, best among American League starters Uh, for the A's. That was their third longest win streak since moving to Oakland in 1968. Elsewhere, I just mentioned it the Pirates. Yes, the Pirates were looking to get back to the 500 mark with a win
1: in Minnesota. Polanco sends one soaring out to right and deep. And there it goes, a home run over the tall wall. Right is center. Polanco with his third home run of the year. A three-hit day. And the Pirates lead 6-1. to one.
0: Joe blocked the call on the Pirates radio network. Three hits for Gregory Polanco, including that home run, as the Bucs beat the Twins 6-2 to two, to take two of three in that weekend series. Pirates are now 11-11 after a 1-6 start. And in New York, the Mets shut out the Nationals 4-0 to take two of three in that weekend series. A Nat starter, Patrick Corbin, gave up four runs on seven hits and three walks in just four innings. He lost his 10th straight decision, uh, dating back to last August. Moving on to the NBA, where the Wizards uh, just keep on
1: winning. Westbrook left wing outside the arc. Now steps inside the arc. Banks and scores! Banks and scores over Isaac Okoro, 116-108. And now the Wizards again have their biggest lead, eight points.
0: The call on Federal News Radio, 119-110 the final. As the Wizards beat the Cavaliers in D.C., Bradley Beal, 33 points. Russell Westbrook, 14 points, 11 assists for Washington, which is on its longest win streak since winning nine in a row uh, back in 2001 uh, when some guy named Michael Jordan uh, was still on the roster. And on the ice uh, Sunday, Jake Gensel scored the only goal of the game at 4.03 of the third period to give the Penguins a 1 0 win over the Bruins in Pittsburgh. Uh, Tristan Jari stopped all 30 shots he faced for the Pens, who are now all alone in first place in the East Division, one point ahead of the Capitals and four in front of the Islanders. And that is your rock around the region brought to you by the Rally Group. And like I said last hour, huge two points for the Penguins yesterday. Because going into yesterday's game, They had 65 points. Boston had 60. So if the Bruins win that game, they're only three points behind Pittsburgh. Huge. Now it's a seven-point spread. With uh, the Pens have seven games left, the Bruins have nine games left. They have two games in hand. And the Pens and Bruins play again tomorrow, and then the Pens are at Washington Thursday and Saturday. If the Pens, and I don't think they will, But if they win the next three games, that could put them very, very close to wrapping up that East division. So we'll see how it shakes out. Uh, Congratulations are in order, oh, by the way, to the uh, Hampshire Boys basketball team. In case you missed this over the weekend, uh, they won the AAA Region 2 Section 1 title on Saturday. With a 64-54 win over Trinity, that game was in Romney. Now, that game was pushed back to Saturday, and we talked about this last week. There was a, a COVID concern with Trinity that forced their session semifinal with Berkeley Springs to be moved to Friday. They were supposed to play Wednesday at Trinity, but instead they played Friday at Berkeley Springs. Trinity won that game. They went to Romney on Saturday, and Hampshire won that game by 10. So the Trojans are now 13-2 this season. And now they get to host a 7-5 North Marion tomorrow night in a region co-final, with the winner earning a spot in the state tournament next week. So the Hampshire boys, Hampshire girls are already there. They played, I don't know when their first game is. I know I said it last week. I forget off the top. So it could be a situation where the Hampshire girls and boys both get to Charleston this year. That'd be pretty impressive. The Hampshire boys are the number two seed in the region. In the other region co-final, Trinity has to travel now to take on the number one seed in the region, uh, Wheeling Central. And all the boys' regional action will start tomorrow tomorrow with uh, the AAA game, so that field of eight in AAA will be set after tomorrow night. On Wednesday, the Quad A and Single A Regionals will be played uh, in Quad A down the, in the Panhandle, Region 2. Martinsburg is hosting Musselman, and Jefferson is hosting Hedgesville. And in Class A Region 2, East Hardy is playing at undefeated Pendleton County, and Tiger's Valley is at Tucker County. And then the uh, boys' regionals will wrap up on Thursday with uh, the double-A games in Region 2, 10-5 uh, and 5 Braxton County is at 5-11 and Moorfield. And then Clay County, the number one seed in the region, is hosting Frankfurt. And, of course, as those games get closer, we'll talk about them more. And then the girls' tournament starts tomorrow. The girls' state tournament starts tomorrow the extra day with the extra classification. So instead of Wednesday through Saturday, it's a Tuesday through Saturday. And I do believe the Frankfurt girls play tomorrow. Let me consult the bones real quick. Hold on. Oh, that's that's I don't want the boys regional. I already talked about the boys regional. Here we go. Here we go. State tournament schedule. Who we have tomorrow? Oh, are you kidding me? They okay, here we go. They get they gave me the brackets at first, but no times. All they did was give me the bracket, but they were, <laughs> here we, now here's the schedule. Uh, we got uh, Thursday, that's yes, Quad A. I don't worry about Quad A. Who plays tomorrow? It's Wednesday. I don't care about that. There we go. Frankfurt versus Williamstown. Tomorrow morning, 11-15. does the Hampshire plays. The girls play. On Wednesday, So there you go. Frankfurt tomorrow, Hampshire on Wednesday. And obviously we'll keep tabs on those games. And as I mentioned last week, if you happen to be in and around uh, the Kaiser area throughout the rest of the week, uh, we will be playing every single tournament game, girls and boys, on our sister station uh, 1390 AM in Kaiser, WKLP. Sometimes on a good night, a clear night, you might, might some slightly get that signal up on this end of Mineral County, but it's rare. But again, if you're in and around Kaiser, Tuesday through Saturday, this week, next week, all the games on AM 1390. And best of luck uh, to all of the girls and then next week the boys heading down to Charleston. Hopefully, I won't be here next week for a couple of days. Because that means the Frankfort boys will uh, qualify for the state tournament. And it won't be easy because Clay County is a good basketball team. But any given day, right? Any given day. Anybody can beat anybody. It ain't over till it's over, and such and such and so forth. I usually give a little recap, a little analysis of our games after we play, We played Friday at More. Uh, it wasn't at Moorfield, although it felt like it. It was a quote-unquote neutral site game at Petersburg. It was Moorfield and Frankfurt for the section title. Uh, Moorfield won that game. And the game was, was kind of tight throughout, right? End of the third quarter, it was 31-26, Moorfield. And then just the wheels fell off for Frankfurt. Morfield scored 27 points in the fourth quarter. 27. Which still blows my mind. And going back and watching a little bit of the film, they scored 25 of those 27 in the final six minutes. And a lot of it was some easy shots breaking the press, and they just beat a path to the free throw line. Just foul shot after foul, and they're a good free throw shooting team. So, like, when I say that any team can beat anybody, there's a situation where Frankfurt beat Moorfield both games in the regular season. And then Moorfield turns around and beats him in the, in, in the section title game. Anything can happen. And I t- this, I mean, Moorfield, I don't know what's going to happen with them. I don't. Because they're hosting a pretty good Braxton County team on Thursday. Like I said, Braxton's 10-5 this year. But Moorfield kind of reminds me of a Grafton team a couple of years ago. And if you pay attention to that, you know what I'm talking about. A couple of years ago, Grafton won seven games all year. Seven. And that was a full schedule, like 20, 21, 22 games. They won seven. And I remember they went to Frankfurt in the regular season, and Frankfurt just blew them out of the gym, just destroyed them. Then, in the section playoffs, Grafing goes back to Frankfurt, and they win. They win. And then they go through Kaiser, and they win. And then they went through, it was either I know, North Marion or, or Fairmont Senior. I can't remember who it was. And they went all the way to the state tournament with seven wins. They got hot. You know, we talk about all the time, teams getting hot at the right time. That Grafton team got hot at the right time, won seven games in the regular season, and ended up going all the way to Charleston and the state tournament. Going through some pretty good teams in the process. This Morfill team, somewhat similar to that. And again, I don't know if they're going to win Thursday. But here's a Morfill team that won the first game of the season. They beat Petersburg. Then they lost 11 in a row, including those two to Frankfurt. And now they've won their last four. They beat Pocahontas County. They beat Kaiser. They beat Petersburg in the section semifinals. And then they beat Frankfurt on Friday in the section championship game. They they have five wins all year. And now here they are. They get to host Braxton County on Thursday. Here they are, one win away from getting to the state tournament. A very, very similar run to what Graffin did a couple years ago. Very similar. And we'll see what happens. I tell you what, the more team we saw on Friday was not the same team we saw the previous two uh, two games. They're playing a lot better, so we'll see what happens. Uh, all right, let's switch gears to uh, let do some baseball now. Let's we'll do some baseball. We'll do some baseball, and I know it's not really local or regional, but I think it's it's worth bringing up because yesterday. The Diamondbacks pulled off something that was pretty amazing. And they, they played a doubleheader against the Braves in Atlanta. That wasn't the amazing part. But things got off to a pretty good start with uh, Zach Gallen on the mound.
1: Breaking ball hit in the air to right center. It's Nick Heath calling for it. He makes the catch. D-backs win. Zach Gallen, a complete game, one-hit shutout in the first game of this doubleheader as the D-backs beat Atlanta in 7-5 to nothing. Gallin was in complete control all day. The call
0: on Arizona Sports 98-7. Gallen allowed just the one hit, which was a Freddie Freeman single in the sixth inning. He struck out six in his first complete game in 30 career starts. Now, after the game, Gallon found out that he would not have qualified for a no-hitter in a seven-inning game. So he said he kind of felt better about you know, giving up that Freeman single in the six because you know ultimately it did not ruin a no-hitter for him. And that's something to keep in mind, <laughs> that a no-hitter in a seven-inning game isn't considered a no-hitter. Although, it is considered a complete game. Because something had happened 30 years ago. There was a Major League Baseball committee on statistics. They decided that a no-hitter would be defined as a game of nine or more innings that ends with no hits. And when they made that move that wiped out like three dozen no-hitters off the books. Like they were rain short and no-hitters. You know what I mean? Games that were called early and whatnot. So they decided back in 1991 that a game of nine or more innings that ends in with no hits is an official no-hitter. Which was really bad news for Gallon's teammate, Madison Bumgarner who started game two against
1: Atlanta. First pitch to Ozuna. He lines one to right, right at Josh Rojas, and seven no-hit innings for Madison Bumgarner as the D-backs sweep a doubleheader from Atlanta, seven to nothing. The D-backs pouring onto the field and congratulating Bumgarner. Seven no-hit innings for Bumgarner, a complete game shutout, and the D-backs win seven to nothing.
0: The call again on Arizona Sports 98-7. I told you they did something amazing. After Gallon gives up one hit in the first seven-inning game, Mad Bum allows no hits in the second seven-inning game. He struck out seven. The only batter to reach base got there on an error in the second inning. Now, again... It will go into the books as a complete game shutout. But still, not a no-hitter. After the game, uh, Mad Bum was asked about the uh, no-no that wasn't a no-no.
1: Do you consider it a no-hitter, Madison? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I didn't give up any hits today. So, I'm not in control of how many innings we're playing. I I like the the seven-inning doubleheader thing.
0: Uh, he was also asked if he could have gone nine innings.
1: I mean, I would have tried. There's too many variables. I, if it works for seven, it's hard to imagine it not working for two more.
0: So, Gallen and Bumgarner allow a total of one hit in 14 innings yesterday. They are the first teammates in 44 years to throw shutouts on the same day. The Red Sox, Reggie Cleveland and Don Os. Through a pair of complete game shutouts at Toronto in 1977. And those were of the nine-inning variety. So, since they're credited with complete games, should Bumgarner's gym be a no-hitter? That's the question. Here's ESPN's Courtney Cronin.
4: We need to go back to this rule that was put into place by an eight-man eight member committee back in 1991 that based on like statistical accuracy deciding that a no hitter is a game of nine or more innings that ends in no hits. Like this wasn't uh, a game that was called after five innings due to weather. I can understand like the circumstances of why you wouldn't have something considered no hitter because uh, because of like a cancellation or if the game ends early or is postponed, what have you. But this was like a this is a scheduled double header because I and I don't even know the circumstances as to why they were playing a double header, but it was scheduled that way. So I don't think that it's fair just to call the game. A shutout I mean yeah that's what they're credited with but when it is a scheduled game to be played in in the form of seven innings which again because of the coronavirus pandemic that's something commissioner Rob Manfred uh decided last year when doubleheaders came into play and under in question I just think that it's it's kind of an antiquated thing and baseball does a lot of this where these rules that have been in place for so long um I don't know if we just don't think to change him or if we're just like such prisoners of of tradition that we don't. But I do think it is, in my book, a a no-hitter, given the circumstances of of the way that he pitched today. And you're right. He hasn't been great this season, but today he was. And he threw a complete seven-inning no-hitter. It's just an accomplishment that's not going to go down in the record book. She's
0: not wrong. She's not wrong. If... You want to go with these seven-inning doubleheaders, which I hate, by the way. But if you want to go that route or route, depending on where you're from, if you officially call them complete game shutouts, you have to call it a no-hitter. If you consider, whether it's seven innings or nine, if it's considered a complete game effort, then it's got to be a no-no. And all you have to do, and it's real simple, and I understand that Major League Baseball doesn't like to go this simple route very often. All you have to do is just put it in the books like that. Right? April 25th, 2021, Madison Bumgarner, no hitter, parentheses, seven innings. That's it. It's that simple. It's okay to add things in a record book. It's okay to put an asterisk beside something, And say, this is what happened, but, right? Bumgarner throws no hitter. However, it was seven innings. Like, What's so hard about that? What's so hard about giving him credit for what he did in an official seven-inning game? You cannot, and this is going back to what uh, Courtney Cronin just said here a little bit. You cannot apply traditional rules to something that isn't traditional. You you cannot apply this nine-inning no-hitter rule to a game. Now, here's the question. Here's the question. What if they went extra innings? Would it be a no-hitter then? If that game went extra innings, if it was 0-0, and Bumgarner goes two more innings, then is it a no-hitter? Like, how does that make sense? He would would technically have pitched in the extras. That's what I don't understand. It's not not a no-hitter after seven, but if it went to nine, then it would have been a no-hitter. Even though a complete game is considered seven innings. It's stupid. But it's what Major League Baseball does. I'll be the first one to sit here and defend Major League Baseball's unwritten rules. I've done it before in the past. As a matter of fact, you can hear it in the show open every day at 7 o'clock. I said Major League Baseball became the national pastime with the unwritten rules, that the unwritten rules are there for a reason. But this isn't what we're really talking about here. We're talking about a situation where you're applying an old rule to something that was just created last year. You can't do that. Right? The seven-inning doubleheaders didn't exist whenever this committee made up this nine-inning thing back in 1991. You have to be able to adjust on the fly. You can't apply the traditional garbage to something that was just created last year. So in my book, which doesn't count for anything, Madison Bumgarner threw a no-hitter yesterday and it should go in a record book as just that. Bumgarner, no-hitter versus Atlanta, right? 2021, seven innings. Baseball won't do that because baseball sometimes can't get out of its own way. But that's baseball for you. All right, uh, time for a break. we got news and uh, weather coming up. And then uh, well more sports stuff. That's what we do here. Stick around. 102.1 FM AM 12:30 Cumberland's ESPN Radio.
2: This is the morning rush.
0: I foresee uh, I foresee uh, shoulder surgery in uh, in my future. Oh, look, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on the radio. But my right shoulder just... Well, it's just not right. I mean, it is on the right, but it's not right. Hasn't been for a while. I guess, look, Whenever you reach my age, and again, I turned 50 at the end of last month, you start uh, taking inventory of all the things that bother you <laughs> on a daily basis because you know eventually... Some of those things will need replaced, and my right shoulder has got to be one of them. I dislocated my right shoulder, oh boy, back in like the mid 2000s, trying to be a softball hero, diving for a fly ball in the outfield during warm ups like an idiot. Landed on the right shoulder, separated it, dislocated it, call it what you want, and it hasn't been right since. And as with a lot of things, the older you get, the worse it gets. Because I think, I don't know. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I, I I feel as if once you sprain something, separate something, dislocate something, break something, that it's just never, obviously it's never the same. It's just never quite right. And as you get older, it gets worse. And my right shoulder just gets worse. To the point where I don't, I don't know if, if something's getting pinched, but every now and then, like my fingers get numb, they get tingly, and my my forearm—it's just—I don't know—it's very annoying, and then it hurts. I'm just—I'm—I'm—I know I'm, I'm whining and complaining right now, but it's bothersome. But I'm trying to sit here and do a show, and my right shoulder is on fire. And My right arm is just like goes dead. I hope it's my shoulder. I hope it's not something else. Anyway. Uh, Back to Major League Baseball. Is there any greater rivalry right now than the Padres-Dodgers? Is it safe to say, at least for the time being, that the Yankees and the Red Sox need to kind of step aside for the moment? Especially when you consider the Yankees are at the bottom of the AL East and the Red Sox are at the top. Now, I look, I understand most outlets are going to push Yankees, Red Sox, because they're two major markets and all that other kind of stuff. But I think right now, you have to look at the Dodgers and the Padres in the NL West as the marquee matchup rivalry. Call it what you want. Last night's game, another pretty exciting chapter so far this, this year. Dodgers were up 7-1 going into the 7th inning. And the Padres came back to win the game. Six runs down in the 7th inning. Padres come all the way back. uh, Manny Machado, former Oriole, a tying RBI single in the ninth, And then Eric Hosmer, a sack fly in the 11th. And the Padres come all the way back to win the game 8-7. And they took, what was that series? Was it uh, three out of four? Or was it two out of three? One One of those two. And they played seven times this year. The Padres have won four of the seven. As a matter of fact, the Dodgers have only lost seven games all year. Four have come to San Diego. And for the most part, most of the games have been pretty exciting. Last night, one run game, big uh, comeback for the Padres. The game before that on Saturday, Dodgers, a one, one, one run win, 5 4. Then in that series, you have a 3 2 win, a 2 0 uh, win by the Dodgers early on the season. Really, the only game, the Dodgers won the first game of the season series 11 6, way back when. Everything else has been pretty close. They played seven times this year, and they've been, for the most part, really exciting, and that's what makes a good rivalry, right? Like, it's not a, it's not a rivalry if it's one-sided. It's not a rivalry if one team just dominates. There's got to be some back and forth. There's got to be some give and take. Yeah, that's why people say that the Steelers-Browns rivalry died when the Browns moved to Baltimore. Because after the new Browns showed up, Steelers just dominated. It wasn't a rivalry. It was a it was a cakewalk. But the Ravens emerged as the Steelers' new rival because that was a lot of back and forth, just some fantastic games. It's got to go both ways for it to be a true rivalry. Right? It's got to be it was not exactly 50 50, but you get the point. And so far, Padres Dodgers played seven games and it's four three. Advantage Padres in some pretty exciting games. We actually, as a matter of fact, had that game last night on this very station. Nationally, Carl Ravitch and Chris Singleton had the call, and here they are talking about last night's Padres comeback.
1: Game seven was all game seven. The
3: San Diego Padres, Chris Singleton, rallied from a 7-1 deficit and win 8-7 in 11 innings. The story of the game was what, in your opinion? Uh, I would say resilience. I mean, that's the story of the game. The Padres—they were down. The Dodgers were in the driver's uh, you know seat all night, and then they really broke it open. You know, middle of the game, towards the back end of the game, in terms of a lead over the Padres, where it was as large as six runs, seven to one at a certain point. And you're saying, all right, this is it. Padres—they they won a couple games in the series. They should kind of fold up and you know get ready for the off day tomorrow. It's been a long month, a long stretch, 17 games in a row. They did the exact opposite, Carl. They kept battling, grinding out at bats, bringing more arms out of that Dodgers bullpen, ultimately tying it up, pushing it to extra innings, and having the fight to win and score more one more run than the Dodgers. How about the impact that, again, Fernando Tatis has? He ends the series with five home runs. He doesn't have two in this game, but he has one, and he scored half of the eight runs incredible player, and, uh, you know, hits the home run tonight off of Dustin May, and really that was the only thing that touched up Dustin May. Um, You know, still there were some moments where you were looking for Tatis. He had the opportunity. He liked the big moment, wasn't necessarily able to come through, was able to score because he was the runner put at second base um, in those those extra innings. But defensively, I'd say what we did see is there's some – concerns there defensively a couple of balls hit to them. some balls that were hit hard so if there's one thing i do come away with is that i'm going to be watching that a little bit more because that to me wasn't impressive to the level that everything else is they've only played 68 innings and you know how many have been two runs or less I have no idea, Carl. At like 49 of them. That's how close this series has been. Twenty one wow. times the game has been tied. Tatis, a big difference maker, as the Padres now lead the season series,
0: four games to three. Now, the one issue so far, the one thing that stands out is that the Padres have trouble beating anybody else. I mean, they're thirteen, they're above five, they're thirteen and eleven. They're above five hundred. But there's there's still three games back of the Dodgers. Mainly because they can't win at home. They're 5-8 and eight in San Diego. They're 8-3 and three on the road. Dodgers still lead the West. The one-party crasher is the Giants. They're in second. They're 14-8. They're a game behind the Dodgers. The Padres are three behind the Dodgers. So I guess the one thing, and it's still close. It's only three games. But the one thing I really might hold this back from being a true greatest rivalry in baseball is the fact that they're separated by a team that their records, their overall records aren't as similar. Dodgers fifteen and seven again Padres thirteen and eleven. as a matter of fact the Diamondbacks are closer to the Padres, they're one game back at eleven and eleven than the pods are to the Dodgers. and I mentioned uh in the first hour of the show, Like, even the Pirates, who they're now 11-11, and they split a four-game series with San Diego. And it would really be a shame if the Padres and Dodgers developed this really good rivalry between the two, but it doesn't mean anything at the end of the season. You know what I mean? Like, what's... Yeah, it's great to follow and keep track of and talk about, but when we get into September and the Pods... If they're six games back, then who cares, right? Because it's all about the finish line. But it does make for some good theater. It does make for some good, especially the you know the give and take with uh, Trevor Bauer and Tatis Jr. the other day. If you don't know what I'm talking about, look it up. I don't have time to get into it. But somebody was accused of stealing signs, and then Tatis hit Bauer, went yard, and kind of pimped the home run and. There was a back and forth, and so, you know, let's look it up. Again, interesting stuff. All right, one final break, then back to wrap things up. Stick around. Cumberland on DSPN Radio.
2: This is the Morning Rush.
0: Let's take a look at the player who delivered, brought to you by All Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard, How about Allegheny College catcher Robert Fernandez, who hit not one, but two walk-off homers, both in extra innings, as the Trojans swept Anna Rundle uh, in Cumberland yesterday. Fernandez hit two homers in Game 1, including a solo shot in the eighth inning to give Allegheny uh, a 4-3 win. It says here, 8-3, that's not right, it's 4-3. My typing skills uh, leave something to be desired. In game two, he had a two-run shot in the eighth inning for a 6-4 Allegheny win and the doubleheader sweep. So for his efforts, Allegheny College catcher Robert Fernandez, the player who delivered, brought to you by All-Seasons Landscaping and Supply Yard. That's incredible. It really is. To hit two walk-off homers on the same day in the same doubleheader, both in extra innings. I can only imagine how rare it would be for a team in general to have that happen. To have just like two different players hit extra inning walk-offs in a doubleheader. Let alone the same player do it. It is. That's pretty amazing. I see here on the internet Twitter machine Uh, Capitals coach uh, Peter Laviolette was on 106.7 The Fan this morning, and they were asking him about uh, Alex Ovechkin. He is uh, day-to-day with a lower body injury. And uh, Laviolette said, quote, I don't think it's anything long-term. I'm not sure if he'll be there tomorrow, but I don't think anyone needs to start getting worried about, like, the playoffs or anything like that, end quote. So, Caps fans, relax. If you, uh, first of all, believe (laughs) the head coach, it could be some posturing, who knows. But uh, Ovechkin, again, day-to-day, might miss tomorrow's game against the Islanders, which is a big game as far as playoff seating goes in the East Division. But as far as playoffs go, he should be all right. And again, uh, Stanley Cup playoffs right around the corner. Maybe a couple weeks left in the regular season. Penguins have seven games. Caps have, I think, seven games. And that Caps Islanders game tomorrow, huge because the Caps lead the Islanders. What's what's uh I can't remember the final. See, the Pens have what, 67 points? The Caps have, where's my standings at here? Okay, uh, yeah, Penns have 67. So the Caps are three points ahead of the Islanders for second place in the East Division. So pretty big game right there tomorrow between those two. And then Thursday and Saturday, you have the Penguins at the Capitals two straight days. So we'll have to wait and see if Ovechkin is available uh, for that Penguin series. If not, then you know he's really hurt. If he can't get on the ice for the Penguins, then you know something is wrong. But Laviolette says, don't sweat it. Won't be anything long term, because the Caps are going to need the Great Eight for the playoffs, because it's going to be really, really hard getting out of that East Division, really hard, because the Pens, the Caps, the Islanders, the Bruins, my goodness, that's that's a tough, that's a tough road to hoe right there, just to get out of that division. So we'll see what happens. Uh, congrats to uh, Steph Curry, who set the NBA record yesterday for threes. In a calendar month, 85. (laughs) And April's not over yet. We still have what, four days left in April? He set the NBA record. He had seven threes last night uh, in a win over Sacramento. He had 85 threes in the month of April and counting. So congrats to him. And before I get out of here, I would be remiss. If I did not uh, wish a happy birthday to our very own Rick Wolford, uh, if you tune into our Allegheny County games of the week, you tune into our ACIT coverage on our sister stations. Uh, Rick has done play-by-play and color ana- uh, analysis. <laughs> what's the word? Analysis. There we go. For us, for a long time. So happy birthday to happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday, Rick. Uh- Happy birthday to you and anybody else uh celebrating a birthday today, I wish you a happy birthday. Uh tonight, nothing going on tonight as far as live sports on our station. Nationals are off and the Capitals are off. So, there you go. The week's lineup. I do believe we have Capitals tomorrow. Do we not? We do we have that uh We have that Caps Islanders game tomorrow. Yeah, we do. So we have Caps tomorrow night, and we have Caps-Pens on Thursday night. Then we have Nationals on Wednesday and Friday. So there's your live sports update here on Cumberland's ESPN Radio. And again, a reminder that the West Virginia Girls' State Tournament starts tomorrow. Frankfort and Williamstown play 11:15 in the AM. And our sister station, AM 1390 in Kaiser, if you're in or around the area, We'll have every game, every girl state game, every boy state game on thirteen ninety. So again, if you're in and around the or just make the special trip down there and tune in, because we'll have that Frankfurt girls game tomorrow morning against Williamstown at 11-15. So there you go. It's nice little programming update to wrap up the show. Things to look forward to uh, this week. All right, that's it. We're done. I'm getting out of here. Uh, final hour of KJZ coming up. Stick around for that. Enjoy the rest of your day. I'll see you back here tomorrow morning 7 a.m. sharp. This is the Morning Rush. I am Tony C. and I am done. Ah! See ya!